Hello, I'm David DiMartino, founding partner at Seven Letter, and welcome to Podcast is a Seven Letter Word. I'm thrilled today to be joined by my colleague and fellow founding partner at Seven Letter, Allison Claire Fastow, and our guest of honor, Seven Letter's newest partner, Drew O'Brien. Hi, David. Hey, Allison. Hello, Drew. Hi, David. Hi, Allison. Drew, we are so excited to have had you join the team. Uh, I'm going to get the embarrassing part out of the way for you and quickly bring our audience up to speed on your background. Before joining Seven Letter, Drew served as Executive Vice President and Managing Director at Burson Conan Wolf, where he led the firm's business throughout the Northeast region. Concurrent with that role, Drew also served as President of Direct Impact, BCW's grassroots communications and advocacy practice. Prior to that, Drew served as Secretary John Kerry's Special Representative for Global Partnerships at the U.S. Department of State. And going way back, before service at the Department of State, Drew held several positions in public service, including State Director and Senior Advisor to U.S. Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts, uh, Special Assistant to Mayor Thomas M. Menino of Boston, and Executive Director of Mayor Menino's Office of Neighborhood Services. Uh, and as a formal disclaimer to the rest of our conversation, it's worth noting that Drew and I have known each other for decades. Uh, we go back to the days of the Curse of the Bambino and the Weld Administration. Uh, and I just want to give a shout out to the John Kerry 1996 re Yeah, shout out to that crew. Still going, many of them still going strong. That's right. So welcome, Drew. Welcome to the podcast. I'm glad to be here. So, Drew, during your time at BCW, in addition to leading the firm's business throughout the Northeast region, you also managed the firm's single largest global corporate client. Can you talk a little bit about how your time at State influenced how you advise and engage with corporate clients with global exposure, how you think about that work? Yes, and that's a great um, that's a great question, Allison, and, and great parallels. And um I had great experience I've had, and you're nice to sort of go through the, some of the things I've done. And I've been fortunate to have um, a good career, including this, um, this venture here with all of you at Seven Letter. I'm very excited about it. I think when I went to the State Department, um, it opened my eyes to complexity and just how many things are, quote unquote, happening all the time in the world. Um, there's political unrest, there's regulatory unrest, there's um, challenges in the media, um, political bias. Um, there's just a lot going on. And unless you sort of are exposed to that day in and day out, you don't really, you don't realize it, you don't think about it. And I think the issue for big global corporations is they are immersed trying to run a business in, in that environment um, every day. So the complexity of that, I think, um, is something that as strategic counselors, strategic communications advisors to big global corporations, we need to bring um, some empathy for that complexity. Um, they have a business to run day in, day out. It's our job. We need to seize our job to, um, to guide them strategically, to give them good communications and PR advice um, with, with just you know, the affirmation that um, there's a lot going on. It's a tough environment to break through. Uh, but it's it's what they need us for. So, Drew, are there um, any other unique communications needs that those clients have that that they can easily overlook? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, I, again, if their if their heads are if the clients' heads are down on their day to day business, um, 
they don't necessarily have the lens on on the things that we're looking out for them on, right? Whether it's a crisis around the corner, um, whether there's there's uh, something going on with one of their competitors or their peer set. Um, I always assume. So I have this thing. Um, I like to over communicate with clients. Um, some people might think that that's a risk. The client might get annoyed, um, may not want to hear from you as much. But I think you can't assume that the client um, has visibility into everything you know. So um, I always like to over communicate, even if they say I knew that or I'm not necessarily interested in that. They are appreciative, I think, at the end of the day that they've heard from you, that you're um, consistently in touch with them uh, and looking out for um, looking out for them. So here at Seven Letter, um, we, we like to say that we marry the best practices of corporate communications with uh, rapper response techniques that you find in political communication. Uh, and, you know, put simply, corporate communications is often focused on a longer timeline, uh, sometimes up to 10 years. And, and regardless of changes to the day-to-day -day landscape or environment that they operate in, um, that's what drives their decision making. What they're, you know, what's, what they're looking at around the corner uh, for their brand and for their products. Um, whereas on the political side, where you know we all kind of cut our teeth. Um, you, often, you often try to burn it all down in one day. You try to get through, uh, you try to get everything out as quickly as possible, and you're not necessarily concerned about, you know, what that's going to mean in five to 10 years down the road. At Seven Letter, you know, our approach with corporate clients is to manage and leverage those changes in the daily environment in support of the long-term communications goals. And as we know, that approach can be challenging for corporate clients because it takes them outside of their comfort zone. Can you speak a little bit with us uh, about how uh, to navigate that need for flexibility within a, within a global corporate brand um, in, in, a, in an environment where um, the new cycle moves so quickly? And I think you, I think you were just getting at this a little bit, Drew, when you when you talked about our need um, as advisors to those clients to be cognizant of all of the different various complexities that they're balancing. And I think we often find ourselves in a position of um, recognizing all of those pieces, but still trying to get folks to move quickly. <laughs> um, and often um, that the flexibility required to move um, quickly is in and of itself a challenge. Right. And I think it, it absolutely is. Um, and it's a good question. I think there's, there's, I, I don't know whether it's, um, I don't know whether this is actually true or if, or if it's a fable of some sort, folk legend, but, but I think there's an expression that it takes um, 25 miles to turn a battleship around because uh, out the open ocean, because they're moving so fast in one direction. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think there's a parallel there to what happens um, with large global organizations um, that, you know, they, they are on uh, a straight line um, trying to meet the needs of their customers, their shareholders, um, I think, you know, I might talk in a minute about stakeholders, but um, they're on that straight line, um, moving quickly towards their business goals. Um, and if you have to get them to turn or focus on something else, it's not easy. It's almost like we have to show up in a speedboat <clears throat> to offer some sort of an assist out there in the open ocean. Um, and I think, you know, we have to recognize they, they are playing a longer game. Um, but I think we have to start at the um, at the rapid result because you can always adjust sort of backwards, right? But I think we have an obligation to sort of act when we know something, uh, when we have some insight to act quickly in our advice and guidance 
Um, they may, you know, they may react quickly with us, but then they might say, not right now, we want to do that later, but I think we have an obligation uh, to get them to think about it and fall back on the long game if that's what we have to do. I just got to say, it's such a great point. I think very frequently we lose sight of um, the need to um, be proactively encouraging internal conversation with uh, the w amongst the partners with whom we're working. Um, and sometimes when we don't see action come out of something that we've suggested, it feels as though nothing has happened. But the reality is very frequently having um, encouraged the internal dialogue in and of itself is an accomplishment. So that the next time there could be a similar challenge or opportunity, perhaps then the client is primed to take action. Right. I yeah, that's that's exactly right, Allison. I when I started, so this is an interesting thing. When I started with Mayor Menino, um, long time ago, um, back in the '90s, when I knew Dave, by the way, um, for the first time. Um, so he was he was an early bird. Um, he was he was very much. Um, um, very much sort of an old style, very progressive in his politics, but very much an old style urban politician. And we, every morning he was awake. I mean, I forget, but he would be awake at 4.30 or quarter to five. Um, and he would read the newspapers. He would listen to, um, you know, what I would call the early part of drive time radio in Boston. It was WBZ. Um, Dave, they, I don't know who, which, who they broadcast these days, Bruin. I don't know who's what sports team's on BZ, but anyway, BZ's been around forever. But he would do all this. He would have consumed an enormous amount of news before 5.30 in the morning. Um, and he would, if there was an issue, problem, he would call. And by the way, this is before people carried cell phones. So he would call my house sometimes at 5.30 or quarter to six in the morning to have a discussion about something you might have heard in the news or seen the newspaper. And I, that conditioned me a little bit too. So I am now sort of an early bird. And, and when I'm encountering the very thing that we're talking about now, this sort of, um, you know, is there a crisis coming? Is there an issue coming? I have a sort of probably unnecessary sense of urgency around it, um, probably because of that. But again, as long as you're sort of, um, you know, getting through early, you can always fall back to the longer game. But I think, um, you know, early notification is key. It's it's what what we should be doing. So domestically, Drew, there's a lot of pressure today on brands to more visibly engage in all sorts of um, issues that are um, divisive politically those often cause moments of crisis engagement for um, large corporate brands. How can brands be thinking about those types of challenges more proactively, perhaps to avoid um, this slow turn of the barge yeah. um, moment that, that folks have? What puzzle pieces could we be helping people put in place in advance so that in those moments of crisis, um, whether it's around social issues, environmental issues, civic engagement issues, perhaps um, brands are, are more prepared to take action. Yeah, the good news is there's an abundance of news. 
the bad news is, the bad news is there, there's an abundance of news, right? And right, and, and that pressure that pressure comes from consumers, investors, yeah. increasingly politicians. I mean, it's coming from a lot of different a lot of different points. Right, and I so I'm I'm still new here, but um, w- when I talk to a client or I talk to a prospect, um, I talk a lot about stakeholders, and I talk about what stakeholders matter. Um, to the company, to the client, or the prospect, um, and and answers are always different, right? And they can be they could be policymakers, they could be um, uh, they could be community members, neighbors, um, they could be investors, they could be customers. I, I have seen, and this is completely unscientific. I have seen um, the rise of I think what I think is the most important stakeholder group, particularly in the activism, if we're going to call it that, of the last three, four, five, eight, ten years, um, employees see are certainly near mm. and dear um, to organizations, and they end up being a little bit of the heartbeat of an organization. I think it's always good advice on on the kind of issues you're talking about, Allison, if they can gauge their employees and see how they feel and, and think or be empathetic um, to where the employees might be on an issue because they are their ambassadors, right? Every employee is an ambassador to a brand and to a company. Um, and I think uh, a company having, um, whether they're, like you said, whether they're social positions or political positions, whatever they are, if there's alignment with employees, then I think the company and the organization is doing something right. That's such a great point because um, we also think about, uh, and we've seen this with folks, some of the folks that we've worked with, even going through COVID, it's not just employees, it's families of employees, it's influencer networks for employees. Um, so, so much does start there. That's a, that's a great point. And it, it's interesting um, what we're seeing happening now is, you know, five years ago, corporations didn't take political positions. Um, and I think they're, the influencer base of their employees has been pushing them in that direction. And now we're starting to see like a political backlash. Um, you know, just, just this week, uh, there was some, some news coverage about how, you know, some members of Congress um, are planning to, uh, you know, limit uh, the ability of organizations to, you know, guide their investments in a, in a, you know, based on equity. And, and we saw a law passed in Florida that prevents the state pension funds from, making those decisions and directs, like literally directs them how to make investments. So, you know, it's a, it's an interesting point in, in you know, if you're in, in a corporation right now, you're, you know, it, it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. You, you your, your employees may want you speaking out on a particular social issue, but there may be some, you know, broader political backlash from state leaders and other elected officials in that context. It's, um, any thoughts on like how to navigate that? Again, it's it's you know it's it's difficult, right? Because um, because policymakers and elected officials, um, you know, we've seen a lot of a lot of um, uh, opining about sort of where they are. This I, we're sort of talking about the the backlash against what what I've heard called woke companies, right? Um, you know, it, it's tough because um, again, this affects employees. Um, it, it affects um, customers, by the way. Customers have a stake in this. Depending on the business, customers have a stake. Um, and I think the wisest thing, um, it's, I might contradict what I said um, about urgency 
five or six minutes ago. But I think being deliberate about this um, is a wise uh, is a wise course because again, you've got to look at all of the stakeholders, all of the people and places and organizations that matter um, to your business, and take that all into consideration. I do stand by I do stand by employees as sort of number one because they are your ambassadors. But it's it's, it's tough. Can we coin a new phrase? Deliberate urgency. Mindful yes. urgency. I like mindful urgency. It's <laughs> good. I like well, that. I think your point, though, about clarity of audience is such an important one. Um, you know, when we talk about this distinction between an approach that places the priority on a vision that's 10 years down the road versus what's happening today and how to keep both of those in play at the same time. Similarly, there needs to be a clarity of focus on your audience such that when there's a mass of voices that potentially fall outside of that, that don't necessarily align with what you have prioritized as your audience, you need to be aware of that, but it can't necessarily derail you in terms of what you're sharing with that core audience. Right. So you need to keep both in the aperture um, and figure out how to align your focus appropriately. And if going into that crisis, you do have clarity on who that core audience is, I think it makes navigating that potential morass of voices a little easier. Well, it's, it's, it's probably easier and it's probably easier to sort of distinguish between what the audience is, is what they're saying, right? The clarity of their messages. Right. And, and as one gets louder or one gets quieter, how much attention do you need to pay to that? And as the, the nature of the, the voice changes, how much does that need to impact your, your own message? Right. And, and you have to look at sort of the domino effect um, of this too. So will one stakeholder group influence another and, right. so, on and so on? And it's interesting it, it wasn't that long ago, but then I think given the activism we've seen over the last, um, you know, 10 years, not, not even 10 years, I would say six to eight years, but the Occupy Wall Street movement, um, which came after the financial crisis in 2008, uh, I, you know, I was in the Senate at the time, I was paying close attention. Um, we, we, we had activity in Boston at Post Office Square. Um, it was, I think, and, and I, again, I don't mean to sort of mischaracterize it, but I don't remember that being, in a, it wasn't an employee campaign. That wasn't necessarily a customer campaign, right? That mm -hmm. was seen as an activist campaign. I think the issue is there's activists everywhere now. Drew, much like um, Mayor Menina was all over everything and, and activists are everywhere. We should let us switch gears a little bit here and talk about um, uh, your role at Direct Impact. Um, you served as president of Direct Impact, which was BCW's grassroots communications and advocacy practice. And grassroots advocacy is often a core part of our issue campaigns at the state and federal levels. Um, what are your thoughts on what's key to ensuring uh, that grassroots um, uh, activism and advocacy is um, continues to be impactful on public policy and policy policymakers? So number one priority for any kind of local market activation is to make sure that it is part of a broader strategy from the enterprise, from, from the main, you know, call it what you will, the, 
the home office, the mothership, whatever you might call it, but it has to be closely connected to um, to a goal there. As, as diffuse as it might be, it's got to be connected to um, a very central strategy. Then I think um, you have to be very, um, uh, in executing local campaigns, um, very deliberate about who you're trying to reach. Because again, my joke, my line before that there's the, the good news is there's an abundance of news. Bad news is there's an abundance of news. You have to be really deliberate about who you're trying to reach and how you're trying to reach them. Um, and that that requires, you know, that requires the things we do here at Seven Letter, right? It's it's research, it's insights, it's um, it's taking a lot of care and concern um, into cultivating the message and identifying the audience. Along those lines, Drew, how do you think about the different levers of influence on policymakers and corporations today? I mean, when David and I look back at doing what we do, you know, even five, certainly 10 years ago, there were a certain set of opinion gatekeepers, whether it's on television and a core set of newspapers that doesn't exist so much anymore um, with content channels so diffuse now even with a clarity of audience, how are we being intentional about the channels that actually matter to decision makers in those organizations? I think it gets back to audience. I mean, I think a lot of us who have been either in public affairs or communications or politics or whatever <clears throat> of a certain age, we still, you know, I will admit, I'll put myself in that category. I put on um, several different news shows in the morning. I read in print as much as possible. The newspapers I can get my hands on on any given day. Um, I listen to drive time radio still. Oh, it's you. You're the one. Yeah, I look at it. It's me and me alone. So so I think you have to, um, it's really about the audiences, either the audiences that you're, um, that, that may be um, being active around you or the audiences you're trying to reach. My 19-year-old children, do none of what I just said to you. Um, and, but by the way, they're up on current events. They're looking at Instagram. They're looking at um, TikTok. Um, in addition to funny dog and cat videos, there's actually, um, you know, they're, they're active in their own ways around um, uh, LGBTQ issues, around, um, around the environment. Um, so it's, it's about audience. And, and identifying how they're consuming the news and the information. So Drew, we've known we've known each other for a very long time, and and I'm super thrilled that you're here with us now at Seven Letter. Um, but without getting too sappy and 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 talking too much about how awesome it is to work with me, um, oh, get a mind... little sappy, get a little bit sappy. <laughs> would, would you mind sharing with us like the thinking behind? Um, you know, this this move you made, this change you made to go from a place like BCW uh, to, to a place like our firm, Seven Letter, and, and what you think or hope we can achieve over the coming years? Yeah, it was, no, Dave, it's a great question. And, um, and you know, on the sappy side of this, I, I get to work. I have great new colleagues, as evidenced by this podcast right now, right? <laughs> Listen to this chemistry. <laughs> It's it's instant, um, but magnetic. I think, oh yeah, when I was um, <laughs> when I was deliberating about this, and and I talked to some of you, 
Um, I wasn't asked that question, but I actually volunteered it. Allison, I don't know if you remember this, but I actually think what Seven Letter does and how they do it is the future of the business. And I think it's um, it's a matter of it's a matter of size. It's a matter of the offering, right? With not just what we do uh, in a public relations and a communications and a public affairs capacity. It's about Seven Letter Labs. It's about Seven Letter Insights. It's putting that all together. Um, in a very nimble way. And I think the way um, uh, our senior, and by the way, we have a wonderful array of, of uh, team members who are new to the business and people uh, like some of us, not all of us, Allison, I won't put you into this category, I've been around a long time. You're much, <laughs> young, you're much younger than we are. Um, but I think our the way our senior team members um, advise clients and how they do it is very rare. Um, and, and I think clients benefit from that. And, and I think um, our, our, the, the way we scope work and, and engage with the clients, I think is also rare and the future of the business. So um, I, I am thrilled to be here. Um, I think we've got a lot of opportunity um, in Boston and beyond. And, and I'm looking forward to getting after that. That's great to hear, Drew. Thank you. I mean, you are our newest partner um, as your official title. And I think for us, partner does mean something um, really important beyond just an internal title, um, but to become true partners to our clients and to establish relationships with them such that they trust us with their largest complex challenges their greatest opportunities. Um, I think for each of us to become that type of counsel and partner to our clients is um, the greatest privilege. So we're thrilled that you've joined us uh, in that capacity. Drew, my new partner and old friend, um, we have one last surprise section for you here for the podcast. Yeah. Um, it's a rapid fire series of questions, either or answers. I don't need a long answer. I'm going to give you two choices and you just pick one. And by the end of this, we'll know a lot about you. Um, so let me know when you're ready to go. But are, don't we don't we give advice to like, isn't one of the things we advise is to answer how you want to answer? So maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I don't want to give a one word answer. It's an, a, it's an A, B test. That's all. Yeah. Okay. It's an A, B test. Give, right. me, give me a try. Allison, I'll go to and then you do yours and then I'll do the rest. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Ready, Drew? Yeah. The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Beatles. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Menino or Weld? Oh, Menino. Gillette or Fenway? Fenway. Brady or Belichick? Belichick's the real goat. Hamburger or hot dog? Oh, I mean, that should that should be both. That should be hamburger and a hot dog. We'll, we'll but, but I'll go with a hamburger. It's probably <laughs> theoretically better for me, but not really. <laughs> the North End or the or Southie? Oh, the North End. Upper Cape or Outer Cape? I'm a mid Cape guy. <laughs> okay. Bovas or Mike's? Oh, Bovas. Yes. Good answer. Chocolate chip or pistachio? <laughs> Chocolate chip. Yes. All right. 
We made the right choice, David. One more, Back Bay or Marina Bay? See, this is where it gets the one word that's complicated. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go with Back Bay. Makes sense. David, I know that I know my Beatles answer goes against your Rolling Stone sensibility. <laughs> but I'm always, I'm always, and I, I love the Rolling Stones, but I'm always prompted to remind people that um, one of the Rolling Stones' first radio charting hits was a song called I Want to Be Your Man. That song was written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. That's the legend. I just That's the legend. <laughs> well, Drew and Allison, thank you so much. What a great conversation we had here today. Um, uh, it's been great to having, having you on podcast as a seven-letter word. And for all you listeners out there, you can uh, listen to podcasts as a seven-letter word anywhere you get your normal podcasts. Thank you very much. Thanks, David. Thanks, Drew. Thanks.